0: Good evening. I'm Christopher Rothko, past chair and board member of the Rothko Chapel for nearly 20 years. I'm very pleased to welcome you to this, our second event, in the Rothko Chapel's 50th anniversary celebratory weekend. Tonight, we take an in-depth look at our new book release, Rothko Chapel, an Oasis for Reflection, published by Rizzoli Electa. This brand new volume, which should be hitting your local bookstore as we speak, is our first publication nearly 20 years to focus specifically on the Rothko Chapel. And in truth, it is our first ever to show the full sweep of the chapel with detailed views of its art, its architecture, its grounds, and its neighborhood context. Like much of our programming this weekend, the book examines the rich history of the Rothko Chapel, starting with its art historical, architectural, philosophical, and theological roots, and also celebrates the chapel as a living institution with a rich programming life encompassing the arts, human rights, social justice, religious tolerance and education. The Rothko Chapel began as a dream, a spark of inspiration for John and Dominique de Menil who believed in the power of art to move the human spirit. As passionate collectors, particularly of 20th century art, they envisioned a sacred space they would speak in a more contemporary tongue. They believed that great contemporary art would communicate directly with a contemporary audience, stimulating faith, personal and spiritual questing in those who came to encounter it. They entrusted that vision to my father, Mark Rothko, several of whose paintings they already owned. Knowing both the artist and his work, they believed that he would engage the viewer in that spiritual mission serving as a guide and stimulus to the open mind. For Rothko, this was the dream commission that spoke not only to the seriousness of his artistic intent, but also allowed him to fully realize the wholly immersive, extended conversation with his viewer he had been seeking for decades. Partnered first with architect Philip Johnson and subsequently with architects Howard Barnstone and Eugene Aubrey, my father was able to create that dream of space thanks in no small part to the Demoneal's faith in his own artistic vision. The Rockfield Chapel speaks so powerfully because of an essential, symbiotic sympathy between artist and patron, and because the space represents the unified vision of a single artist. Our authors, Stephen Fox and Pamela Smart, and photographer Paul Hester, document that history and depict the way those original ideas had manifested themselves and the Rothko chapel as it's grown through the last half century. They position the chapel in the context of sacred art and architecture while examining the interplay between artwork and the active life of the chapel as a place for spiritual seeking and forum for global human concerns. As I think you will see over the course of this program and hopefully in your own hands very soon, the book richly captures so much of the essence of the Rothko Chapel. This volume also documents the newly restored Rothko Chapel and re-landscaped grounds, the work of our opening spaces campaign that has done so much to enhance the feeling of welcome at the chapel. It offers a first glimpse of our work still to come and a Rothko Chapel ready to greet its next 50 years. Tonight we welcome the creative team behind Rothko Chapel, an oasis for reflection, now, we'll introduce them in the order of their presentations. Architectural historian Stephen Fox is a lecturer at the Rice University School of Architecture and the Geraldine Hines College of Architecture of the University of Houston. He is also a fellow of the Anchorage Foundation of Texas. Fox's work is focused on architecture of the 19th and 20th centuries, particularly that of Houston and Texas. His publications include the recent Making Houston Modern, the Life and Architecture of Howard Barnstone. Pamela Smart is Associate Professor of Art History and Anthropology and Chair of the Department of Art History at Binghamton University in New York. She received her PhD in Anthropology from Rice University. Her publications include her 2011 book, Sacred Modern, Faith, Activism and Aesthetics, in the Menil Collection, which in many ways served as a precursor for her writing on the Rothko Chapel. Paul Hester is a photographer of art and architecture and has worked with both the Rothko Chapel and Menil Collections for many, many years. His photographs are in the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris, the Stedelijk Museum in Amsterdam, and the National Museum of American Art, among many others. He's been on the faculty of Rice University and is a recipient of the Texas Society of Architects Flowers Award. I want to emphasize that our three authors were not chosen simply because they are adept with pen and shutter button. Each of these contributors has a long association with and an intuitive understanding of our institution. Stephen Fox, for example, has served on both iterations of the chapel's site plan committee, helping us both restore the chapel and prepare it for its next half century. Pamela Smart has, through years of research on the de Menil civic and artistic projects, become thoroughly fluent in their aesthetic language. And Paul Hester has participated in and documented seemingly every moment of the Menil legacy. Our three panelists will guide you through their process and making their contributions to this volume, what they brought to the project and also what they learned from it. I'll now turn over the podium to panel moderator, Ashley Klemmer the Rothko Chapel's Director of Programs and Community Engagement, who shaped so much of our public profile. Like the speakers, she has a long association with the chapel and has a deep connection to its lifeblood and its pulse. Ashley?
1: Thank you, Christopher, for those kind introductions and welcome Pam, Paul, and Stephen. It's so wonderful to have you here to talk with us about this new publication which I have here tonight is just absolutely stunning. As Christopher noted, each of you brings such a rich history and connection to the Rothko Chapel and the Manil legacy here in Houston, which we will spend a little bit of time exploring during our conversation. First, I imagine everyone who's joining us is intrigued and curious to, to get a glimpse into what they'll find on the pages of this publication and to learn more about what each of your unique contributions were this piece. So I'm going to call on each of you to ask and ask that you start with just sharing a few introductory words about your specific role within the publication. And then you can move into the specific prompt that I'll give you um, and any images that you'd like to share. So we're going to start with you, Stephen. Hi, welcome. (laughs)
2: Good to see you. Hello, it's great to be here.
1: So in your essay, you place the Rothko Chapel within the landscape of Houston and within a history of architecture and art chapels. And then you go on to share a little bit about the origin story of the chapel's commission, the original intention and what transpired along the way. Please share that story with
2: us. Thank you, Ashley. I'm an architectural historian and I was asked to write about the architectural significance of the Rothko Chapel. When the chapel opened in 1971, its design was criticized by art critics, several of them close friends of Mark Rothko, who felt that the building, and especially the design of the skylight, undermined the gravity and poignance of Rothko's paintings. Questions about the building, which historians of Mark Rothko's career, Sheldon Nodelman, Susan Barnes, James Breslin, and David Ampham have explored, proved a continuing source of disagreement during the span of years between 1964, when the chapel project began, and 1971, when the building was dedicated. A cultural issue that divided Mark Rothko and the New York architect Philip Johnson, who designed both Dominique and John de Menil's house in Houston, and the campus of the University of St. Thomas in Houston, where the chapel was to have been built was the relationship between modernism and history. Mark Rothko prized emotional intensity, which he experienced when he visited the island of Torcello in the Venetian Lagoon. He was moved by the octagonal martyrium of Santa Fosca, which you see here, but especially by the confrontation between a pair of frescoes in the adjoining basilica, the universal judgment on the entry wall and the majestic figure of the mother of God holding the infant Jesus in the apse. Rothko told Dominique de Menil that he wanted to reproduce the acute emotional tension he felt in the basilica with his chapel paintings. The building was planned to be a Catholic chapel, part of Philip Johnson's campus for the University of St. Thomas, located where the university's library now stands. It's the building on the left. At Rothko's insistence, Philip Johnson amended his initial square floor plan for the chapel, transforming it into an octagonal interior where Rothko's paintings could envelop worshipers. Fairly quickly, Rothko and Johnson worked out the floor plan, the location of openings within the worship space and the height of the interior walls. They agreed that the only source of natural light would be a skylight. What they never reached agreement on was the external configuration of the skylight. Johnson crowned his design This is an early version dating from 1965, with a tremendous light cone, three times the height of the building beneath it. Between 1965 and 1967, Johnson worked out numerous variations while preserving the chapel's interior shape and dimensions. But he insisted on some form of lantern to mitigate what Johnson warned would be the overpowering intensity of the Houston Sun. Rothko rejected every proposal. Mr. and Mrs. de Menil sided with Rothko. And in November 1967, Johnson resigned, turning the job over to his Houston colleagues, Howard Barnstone and Eugene Aubrey. Crises persisted. In October 1968, Dominique and John de Menil ended their affiliation with the University of St. Thomas. Mr. and Mrs. de built the chapel, now no longer a Catholic church, but an ecumenical chapel near the university campus, but not on it. Eugene Aubrey worked with Mark Rothko to finalize such construction details as the chapel's asphalt floor, which Rothko approved just weeks before he killed himself in February, 1970. The chapel, now called the Rothko Chapel, was constructed in 1970 and dedicated 50 years ago today. In ceasing to be a Catholic church and acquiring the dedication to its artist, the Rothko Chapel became a seminal example of a new, historically inflected modern building type, the Art Chapel, where works of art rather than religious symbols occupied the foreground. Philip Johnson had already designed one of the first art chapels, the Roofless Church of 1960 in the historic village of New Harmony, Indiana. His client was a friend of Dominique and John de Menil's, Jane Blackford Owen of Houston. Like the Rothko Chapel, the Roofless Church is an ecumenical site. The verticality, and billowing contours of its wood canopy sheltering a sculpture by Jacques Lipschitz are consistent with Johnson's sense of what a spiritually evocative structure should look and feel like. The Rothko chapel embodies the tension between Mark Rothko's and Philip Johnson's differing preoccupations on how history and modernism might intersect. Johnson wanted a literal fusion of the two. Rothko sought a more complex and emotional reconciliation. The installation of the new skylight designed by George Sexton and ARO Architects has finally achieved Mark Rothko's sense of how he hoped you might experience this luminous, numinous place.
1: Thank you for that background, Stephen. So many people know the Rothko Chapel as it is today, where it's located, and they don't realize that originally it was being imagined as part of the St. Thomas campus within the Christian context, Um, nor do they realize that it's part of a long legacy of our chapels. So that background is very helpful. Thanks so much. So now let's turn to Pam. We now have a sense of the chapel as a pla- hi, Pam. How are you? <laughs> we now have a sense of the chapel as a place. Um, how and how this place came to be. You really explore in your essay um, how it became activated once its doors were open to the community and how it began to live out its original intention and mission. So, in your essay, you begin the piece by speaking about atmospheric pressure and you go on to talk about how it's necessary, the necessary component for the three key elements of the Rothko Chapel project. Uh, Please explain what you mean by this term, atmospheric pressure, and uh, what these three
3: components are. I was invited to write about the convictions underpinning the Rothko Chapel and the ways in which the space has been activated and refined throughout the 50 years since the chapel's inauguration. Throughout the process of researching and reflecting on the chapel, I came to understand how it's three elements, an an installation of Rothko's paintings, a space that's experienced as especially freighted with spirituality, and an institution committed to the pursuit of social justice, how they're fully integrated into the vocation of the chapel, and the chapel's attentively calibrated atmosphere resides at its core. I take the term atmospheric pressure from the writer and critic Elaine de Kooning who attributed this deeply effective quality to earlier paintings by Rothko. Atmospheric pressure is palpable in the Rothko Chapel. I show this image of the performance of Morton Feldman's work, Rothko Chapel, that was premiered in 1972, having been commissioned by Dominique and John de Menil. The conductor, Maurice Perez, is standing with his back to the wall, facing the the chorus members arrayed around the periphery of the octagonal space to one side and the musicians to the other. The audience members, as art historian Thomas Crowe has observed, with the performers encircling them, found themselves fully engulfed in sound. And this immersive performance resonates strongly with Rothko's plan for the chapel. In his studio, Rothko built a full-size mock-up of three of the chapel's walls so that he could calibrate the ways in which the suite of 14 massive canvases would interact with each other. With their creation and dialogue with each other, and with the chapel's architecture, they constitute a total engulfing environment. In the austere, still space of the chapel, Rothko's paintings contribute powerfully to producing an atmospheric intensity that has the effect of attuning our disposition toward contemplation and that for many visitors, conjures proximity to the transcendent or to the spirit. A remarkably large number of comments in the chapel's guestbooks attest to the intensely spiritual character of visitors' experiences within the chapel. Dominique and John de Mille had long harbored the idea of building a chapel that, in its architecture and interior design, would create conditions conducive to spiritual experience. And while it might go without saying that a chapel would be directed toward conjuring spiritual experience, the Meneals held the conviction that the prevailing tendency then, and throughout the prior century, To build places of worship that drew on past architectural styles made faith itself seem kind of retrospective, merely a vestige of the past. And the Meniels followed the Catholic modernist French sacred art movement in arguing that places of worship should embrace contemporary art and architecture, if they're to speak powerfully to people in the present. So to enter the chapel is to really find yourself quite elsewhere Attention doesn't immediately land on the canvases, perhaps, though they loom in every direction. Instead, the paintings infuse the atmosphere that feels dense and still, enveloping visitors. And as quiet washes over and eyes adjust to the diminished light, a slow receptivity takes hold and the paintings begin to reveal themselves. And as Dominique de Menil observed, this attitude of receptivity indispensable in art is also the attitude necessary for ecumenism to listen this reference to ecumenism and the injunction to open the of faiths notwithstanding the Meniel's own deeply held catholicism came to be integral to the project of the chapel and this openness to others caring for those who are not like us drew the chapel into issues of social justice the menial's ecumenism that expanded Became more thoroughgoing, more radical throughout the course of the chapel's conceptualization and realization. Together with its commitment to social justice, reside at the core of its vocation. They're inextricably intertwined with the experience of the chapel itself, insofar as the attunement to contemplation that the chapel elicits, along with its open welcome, are meant ideally to orient visitors toward subsequent action on behalf of justice. Indeed, it was Dominique de Miguel's fervent hope that the contemplative atmosphere of the chapel would invite less a withdrawal from the world than an occasion for rigorous reflection that would yield purpose of action in the world.
1: Thank you, Pam. You really helped to, uh, to give us a sense of of the chapel is this immersive experience. I've noticed during my time working at the chapel and facilitating groups who come, you know, perhaps for the first time. And sometimes people walk into the chapel very familiar with Rothko's paintings, um, and and kind of walking in as as though they're they're walking into a museum. And there's just a moment of confusion and maybe a little bit of disappointment. And then once we have that conversation and and there's a that acknowledgement of uh, these paintings more um, um, as as the architecture and as uh, this immersive experience, um, I think that really changes then how, how they begin to engage with the space. Uh, so thank you for sharing those images. I think it really helps to convey that, especially for those who are viewing who have never been to the chapel. So um, I wanna shift now and, and talk a little bit about your process um, as part of your research you spent an entire summer in the Rothko Chapel Archives. Can you share a little bit about the role of the archives in your work, and why they're so necessary for an institution to preserve and to make accessible to researchers?
3: Yeah, I'd be glad to. I'm uh, I I'm, I feel incredibly uh, warmly disposed toward uh, archives in general, and especially the Rothko Chapel Archive. This uh, image shows the unprepossessing cover to the folio of reports or exploration logs as they were called, written by Dominic and John de Menil as records of their extensive travel to meet with religious figures in Europe, but also in the Middle East and in Africa and South Asia. I'd long known of their existence, but the opportunity to comb through them in the archive was invaluable. The slide on the right, by the way, shows the Meniels with archbishop Archbishop George Coder and Nazar Raslin in Beirut in 1972. The travel logs reveal not only the seriousness and rigor of the Meniels' efforts to establish religious standing for the chapel and to draw others into their project, but also their evolving understanding of ecumenism itself and of the chapel as a space where ecumenical encounters might be orchestrated, along with a growing commitment to a vocation of hospitality hospitality not just to people with whom we are comfortable and familiar but to those whose difference from us might seem unbridgeable and encounters with whom are frequently uncomfortable we're inclined in retrospect to imagine the chapel as the realization of a set of already defined intentions but in fact the archive reveals an ongoing campaign to understand and shape its potential As you learned from Stephen, the chapel had initially been intended as a pretty straightforward gift to complete the campus of the University of St. Thomas. With their break from St. Thomas, the Menneals found themselves not simply benefactors of a gift that they would hand over to the care of others, but as fully responsible for figuring out what the chapel would be and for bringing it to life. It became a commitment far beyond what they had initially anticipated and one that they figured out en route, as it were, and others have subsequently sought to refine it for their time. In preparation for the restoration project, the the, uh, the first phase of which we are now seeing realised, a good deal of attention was paid to the archives in order to ensure that the restoration would honour the intentions of the artists and founders and to preserve fidelity to the original. But in many ways, the archive makes clear it's really not so much a project to restore the chapel to its original state but rather an ongoing project of refinement with recourse both to the past as well as to the present and to an anticipated future
1: you can you know, I've worked very closely with the archives at the, the Rothko Chapel and it's it's one of those things that you don't think about until you need it. Right. And it's not often seen as the the most um, glamorous thing to to fund or to be a part of. But um, over these past years, as, as you said, as we've been going through this restoration process and many other projects leading up to this 50th anniversary, we have really relied on these documents and images and history to remind us what has been happened, what has happened, and uh, to to give us an opportunity to build on that. So, thank you so much for sharing that. So, last question. Um, you also write about phase two of the opening spaces project that the chapel is gonna be moving into now that we've completed um, the phase one of the chapel restoration. And you talk about the the need for an additional program space. Um, please just talk with us a little bit about why you think that is so important for the, the future of the chapel.
3: Yes, I mean, we oftentimes think of the space of the chapel um, more than, uh, more than we're aware of the programming that, uh, that is produced uh, for the chapel. So early in, early in the life of the Rothko chapel, the Meniels and their collaborators envisioned a series of colloquia that would bring together within the space of the chapel intellectuals who would discuss pressing issues. The first of these traditional modes of contemplation and action in world religions pictured here was a week long program of conversations that opened as scheduled in July 1973, just weeks after John de Menil's death. In response to the question, isn't this getting away from the ecumenical vocation of the chapel from its artistic and religious functions? Dominique de re- responded in a manner that alludes to the chapel's spiritually inflected atmosphere and I'm quoting, the mere fact of assembling in the chapel, she wrote, gives a spiritual orientation to the debates and a kind of gravitas too. Um, Assembly in the chapel, however, has its limits, as is apparent in this image that makes me gasp at the proximity to the paintings of all of this unwieldy hardware. The construction of space for workshops, symposia, and other programming is integral to the open space, opening spaces master plan that's guided the restoration with an eye to expanding the campus's reach and recalibrating its commitment to action. The programming space can be seen to the, on the right to the rear of the courtyard and in, in the, in the plan. The Rothko Chapel has in recent years hosted symposia on income inequality, mass incarceration and climate change that are broadly participatory and designed to link analysis with activism and to serve as a platform upon which linkages with community organisations and resources will be built. So this kind of space is all the more important today. The master plan also called for the provision of a separate welcome house, which is shown here, uh, completed as part of phase one on the left. Uh, where visitors can gather and orient themselves, a facility to house a noisy mechanical plant distant from the quiet of the chapel, and administrative and research facilities, including space for the archive. These are located across the road from the chapel in Barnett Newman's Broken Obelisk, and the effect beyond the functional virtues of this expanded architectural complex is to more fully modulate the space of the chapel itself as a place of contemplation.
1: Thank you, Pam. What you've shared is really helpful in conveying some of the dualities of the space, um, both the chapel and then the experience. And um, as a staff person, this is something that. Uh, internally, we talk about a lot um, the those those tensions and how to be both a steward of the chapel and the paintings as really um, as well as being able to uh, make the space available for religious experiences and to rally people around significant uh, human rights issues. It was also really helpful getting a glimpse into what the chapel has uh, in store for the future. So thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Okay, so now this brings us to you, Paul. Final and uh, one of the most important parts of this publication um, is all of the beautiful photography that uh, brings all of this into life, all these words that we're talking about. So, so for both the restoration process and this publication process, you have served as the visual storyteller documenting the chapel and the grounds. Um, Please share with us a little bit about your process, uh, some of the historic images that that you found inspiration uh, from, and what you were working to capture both from an archival standpoint as well as for this publication.
4: Thank you, Ashley. I'm excited to be part of this evening's presentation and to be part of this uh, very important book publication about the restoration. My participation in the project began in November of 2018, when I was asked to document the neighborhood and the condition of the chapel at that time. This evening, I will show several photographs from the beginning of the chapel go through the two years of construction, and bring you up to date on the way the chapel looks now. We began with this first photograph taken by Blaine Hickey and Ogden Robertson in 1971, when the Rothko paintings were entering into the chapel. They entered in through the skylight. There were no doorways big enough to admit the paintings. So you see, uh, the way the chapel looked at that time. and this photograph of 1971, also by Hickey and Robertson, please note the lighting that's attached to the ceiling and that you can see the full skylight at that time. This is a photograph I made two years ago in the same position and you see the large baffle that hangs down, uh, that covers the skylight and the supplementary lighting that had been added. And in this photograph taken most recently, you see how in many ways nothing has changed and yet the quality of light and the skylight has been revealed again and none of the lighting is visible. So next we will go through a series as I walked around the neighborhood two years ago, documenting the landscaping and uh, condition of the chapel. You will notice it looked very comfortable a little worn around the edges um, in need of some repair and some needed some attention. And for those of you who haven't been here, you'll see the way the neighborhood is and the way it fits into the residential scale of the neighborhood, which I think is one of the really important parts of the chapel. Um, the little bungalows that the Meniels had purchased and painted gray to unify the neighborhood the Barnett Newman sculpture in memory of Martin Luther King, uh, the reflecting pool surrounded by bamboo. And then the construction fence went up, and we uh, and I kept going to document the draining of the pool, the introduction of uh, tools, machinery, uh, and the chapel was closed to the public for those two years the last glimpse of the existing entry, uh, the glass walls, the doors, and in the way the interior of the chapel looked two years ago, uh, cons- conservation team doing an inventory of the condition of the paintings, what it looked like above the baffle that concealed that skylight, the way lighting had been introduced. Um, and then the paintings were removed. Here's a panorama of the paintings being removed and packaged by Crate Works and taken taken away for storage for those two years. And there they go. One painting remained for a few days for a test of the new lighting system. Took a lot of people, a lot of efforts to uh, create a new lighting. Then Lindbeck Construction filled up the space of the chapel creating this dance floor up close to the ceiling so that the baffle could be removed. Here's Pam supervising the mechanical and electrical renovation, Uh, completely new heating and air conditioning, a new ceiling. And underneath that dance floor, all the work that went on downstairs, uh, new plaster walls, Louvers were installed. This is the new skylight Uh, louvers there. All the louvers are in place to protect the paintings from the Texas sun that Philip Johnson warned about. Um, And now the paintings are being returned. And here it's being documented the hanging of the last paintings. And this is the way the chapel looks now. People have been returning on the time schedule for meditation and contemplation. And the lighting is improved for contemplation of the details of the paintings. And moving outside, you see the landscaping, uh, a complete recreation, creation of a new space for intimacy and also contemplation. And that's
1: it. Thank you for these incredible photographs Paul and especially for sharing some of the behind the scenes that um, that we might not know or, or see otherwise. It always takes my breath away when I see those images that you shared of the paintings being brought down through the skylight and I have to say just now um, I gasped just a little bit when I saw that image of the paintings that were being taken through the doorway and you see just like a Barely a tiny little space uh, above them. I can only imagine the uh, pressure and the stress of those art handlers who were put in that that situation. And that last photograph that you shared, um, so striking. Um, and I think especially for those of you who are not from from Texas, it really captures the, in- the incredible light and in the sunsets that that you find here in Houston. Now we're gonna. Come back to uh, all of us here on the screen. Welcome back, everyone. And thank you also. So thank you again, Paul, and thank you, Stephen, and Pam, for your presentations. The three of you together uh, through words, images, um, you so beautifully convey the unique story and experience and place that is the Rothko Chapel. And, um, I have to say, you know, even after nine years, this is not an easy thing to do in an elevator speech. Um, and especially not, um, when you're speaking with someone who maybe is unfamiliar with Mark Rothko or mid-century modern architecture or interfaith spaces. So, um, I think even with all the limitations of what one can capture on a printed page, I think together you all really convey the complexity uh, and intentionality of the chapel and its dual vocation as a place for contemplation and action. So congratulations on that. You're very quiet over there, are you with me? Um, so, so now we're going to uh, we're going to talk a bit, and um, this is one kind of for all three of you. So, Pam and, and Stephen both in both of your writings, you talk a lot about the intentionality. Um, Paul, you talk about the intentionality behind the creation of the chapel itself. Uh, Pam, you know the intentionality around how it was brought to life, and Paul, you certainly capture this. Um, and in, uh, the intentionality of the manilas in creating the entire environment of the neighborhood and the surrounding blocks, um, which is thought by many as an, o- an oasis uh, in the midst of a bustling city. So we're gonna start with you, Steven. Can you share for the audience some of the key aesthetic elements um, or maybe rather lack thereof that really makes up this intentional environment? Um, and especially for those who've who've never been here.
2: Sure, Ashley. Uh, I think as Paul's photographs show so beautifully, um, the Rothko Chapel is set in a residential neighborhood, uh, a neighborhood developed in the 1920s with these sort of one-story bungalows and two-story duplexes. Um, Although it adjoins both the campus of the University of St. Thomas uh, on the east and the Menil Collection uh, Art Museum Complex on the West, you still feel like you're in a residential neighborhood rather than an institutional precinct. And again, I think as Paul mentioned, the fact that um, Mr. and Mrs. de Menil in the early 1970s had all of the houses that they owned painted gray with white trim. It was a suggestion of the architect Howard Barnstone it gives this whole area a, a kind of surreal and very serene uh, quality. Um, the live oak trees, again, uh, Paul uh, displayed how much they affect your perception of the neighborhood. The, the Rothko Chapel building is a fairly modest building. It's, it's not grandiose. Uh, neither Mark Rothko nor Mr. and Mrs. Demediel uh, wanted it to be a monument. And that, that was part of the problem with Philip Johnson. And what what you do see, uh, what you experience, you know, when when you visit, are uh, in addition to the paintings, uh, the kind of other qualities of the space. And for me, the the asphalt floors have always loomed very large in that experience. And and you know, one doesn't even usually think about the floor when you're in an extraordinary place. But the way in which the that that black floor. Um, I mean, I mean, saying asphalt makes it sounds like it, it, it's a parking lot or something, uh, but uh, it's a very resilient surface. And uh, acoustically, it makes it a very quiet space. And it, it's intriguing to me how something so uh, kind of ordinary contributes to your experience of something that's very extraordinary.
1: Thank you. Well, well said. Sam, you wrote an entire book on this topic of the Manil's philosophy and uh, values that really drive their aesthetic decisions. Um, And we see this in the the chapel as well as a complete work of art. Can you talk a little bit
3: more about that?
1: And you are mute.
3: Sorry. (laughs) I'm really glad to talk about that, Ashley. At the uh, Menil Collection, as at the uh, Rothko Chapel, uh, there was a, it's been this very strong attention to crafting conditions of encounter, with the understanding that that art uh, really relies on uh, these uh, conditions that are, that are, solicitous to, uh, to our engagement with them. So she rec- the, um, Dominique de Medi recognized the, uh, the value of creating conditions that would really foster attention and uh, and that would draw us into a conversation. And so uh, it's that idea of the relation relation building a relationship between viewers, And artworks uh, that that imbues both the chapel and the menial collection Um, and of course at the chapel this is intensified by by the fact that it's not just about looking at artworks it's also has this this larger um, uh, vocation of uh, of really encountering the spirit uh, as well so uh, and 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 these commitments were really importantly underpinned by uh, by as I mentioned earlier the uh, Catholic French Catholic modernism and a, a real concern with making not only faith. Uh, plausible in the contemporary at a, t- at a time in the interwar years when people were, had been moving away from, uh, from, relig- from religion, uh, to this really strong desire to make faith uh, really come alive in the contemporary and equally to make art come alive as well. And so just one other thing is that, is that, is that at, the, at the Menil Collection and, and certainly at the Rothko Chapel, you, there is a, an absence of kind of didactic information. We're not being asked to look at the, engage with these paintings as artifacts of art history, but as, uh, as images that come alive for us and are and experienced kind of viscerally rather than just as an intellectual matter.
1: Thank you for sharing that. And um, I'm not sure if you and and Stephen mentioned, but something that is really noticeable for anyone who hasn't been to the Rothko Chapel and to the Manil collection, um, but you really are in a neighborhood. And so unlike uh, when you're entering other cultural institutions or museums, you're not met with large signs um it really just uh it's as though you're you're driving down a neighborhood and then all of a sudden there's this and you know internationally renowned work of art that's just on the lawn uh where people are having a picnic um and and something you talk about pam that i think is attention that the chapel has really um uh, been aware of over the years is on one hand, uh, really wanting to honor both Rothko and the Manil's philosophy around allowing individuals to have that personal experience. Um, so not telling people what it is uh, or what they should think or feel about it. But at the same time, acknowledging that if, if one does not have all, all of this background, you know, some of the background that you all have shared with us today, it can be a challenging space to all of a sudden encounter and to, to walk in. And, um, the new welcome house that we've developed that's across the street. I think that that's why this space is so wonderful because it just provides a little bit of orientation for individuals if they want that and need it. I'm um, still without telling them what it is, but just providing a little bit of that story, which, um, I have found in, in leading, you know, visits and tours over the years that can be really helpful just, um, as a, a bridge and an invitation, uh, for the experience. Well, um it, what i'd I'd like to on this same kind of topic around the aesthetics and the experience um you know in addition to um you know all the intention that was created in in physically uh this space it it is set in a neighborhood where people live um, and uh, it is for people to experience and as someone who not only has engaged with the chapel and the Manila collection on a professional level, um, you also have lived in the neighborhood. You raised your family here. So I wonder if you can talk a little bit about your experiences firsthand and observationally as it relates to how people engage with the chapel and the grounds historically, and maybe a little bit of what you've noticed since this recent chapel restoration.
4: Yes, I'm happy to talk about the availability of the chapel. Being in the neighborhood, um, one becomes so aware of the generosity and the uh, beliefs of the Menils to make all of these experiences available for everyone. Uh, I've learned so much listening to Stephen and Pam talk about the history from the archives and the knowledge of this background, um, the ability to be able to walk in at any time uh, to take advantage of the quiet and the stillness, even though it's a neighborhood, it's still in the middle of the city, but you get inside and um, it all drops away. Uh, it, I love this phrase of atmospheric pressure because it's a, uh, a certain condition, a certain feeling. Uh, that's so available. Uh, you don't have to buy a ticket. Uh, I think during the pandemic, um, the public spaces around the museum and the chapel have become uh, a refuge for people needing to be out of their houses, uh, and and I love that. That uh, sometimes it would even be crowded. Uh, there would be. Um, and the meal makes that available. They put up the signs reminding us to stay six feet apart and to leash your dog. Uh, beyond that, it's it's ours. And I think that's the uh, that's a remarkable feeling.
1: Thank you for that. So now I want to move a little bit into the process of um, creating this publication and each of your roles. And kind of on that, to build off of what you just shared, Paul, I want to talk a little bit about just the, um, your process uh, trying to, not just trying, you did it, of capturing this experience. Um, architectural photography is clearly a very unique art form. How, how did you go about approaching this task of accurately capturing the complete space? Um, and how do you illustrate and evoke the life of the space into your work? And maybe you can share some of the challenges that across along the way.
4: I think um, <clears throat> Philip Johnson was uh, correct in his warnings about the Texas sunlight, and uh, as we've heard today, this evening from uh, Stephen and Pam about the process and the the chapel being an ongoing process, not a uh, finished. Uh, we you've seen the chapel in the early photographs with the skylight open. Uh, the Manil spent a great deal of effort uh, building a half-size building and commissioning half-size paintings of the Rothko paintings to study the lighting problem, the lighting issues, uh, and the baffle that was constructed over the skylight to bounce the light up on the ceiling and down, the extra lights that were added, um, for me it was never really very successful. I, I always felt uh, a heaviness and a kind of dark cloud hanging over. I think it emphasized uh, and coincided with the knowledge that uh, of Rothko's death. Uh, It just gave a certain tilt to the meaning of the paintings for me at that time. And what the new situation does is it opens it up. It it lets the light come down, lets my feelings go up. The paintings are brighter. Uh, It's a it's a completely different space, um, and so that recording that, documenting that, um, that change over the years um, is has been a real treat.
1: Thank you. You've done an incredible, incredible job, and it's so helpful for the chapel to have now this beautiful suite of images. Thanks. But Pam, we hit on this a little bit earlier, um, but prior to this project, um, you. Part of the beginning of your career was spending over a decade, I believe, researching and writing the book *Sacred Modern*. Which, if you all tuning in are not familiar, it's a a beautiful publication that really delves into a lot of the things that we're talking about today. Um, So, you already had a lot of background on the Manils and on the Manil collection. Um, I'm curious, what what was one of the big discoveries or surprises uh, that? that you learned in, in the process of researching uh, and writing this, or you could also, if, if, if there wasn't specifically one, um, perhaps you came with some assumptions that, that were shifted or changed through this process. Sure,
3: um, one, of the, one of the things that I certainly um, came to understand when I was working on the Menil Collection um, which is, I should make clear, a separate institution from the Rothko chapel, even though it's uh, founders, uh, that both institutions were founded by uh, the de Menils. But But uh, when I was working on the Minial collection, uh, one of the things that uh, became clear to me was the extent to which the, the many benefactions of the Minials uh from uh, community uh uh kind of neighborhood uh houses for um that were um run by uh black activists their ac- activity in uh school board politics their uh their, their work on um uh maintaining uh Funding uh, the maintenance of archives uh, uh, for a variety of different projects that they um, that they supported, as well as the Rothko Chapel and the Minil collection. I think a lot of people had seen these uh, various benefactions as quite separate uh, endeavours, and what became clear is that there are underlying convictions that are um, Im- that imbue all of these projects and actually draw them all into conversation with each other they are in a sense of a whole however looking um, from the perspective of the Rothko chapel uh, and and, uh, doing research for for this publication it also became really clear that the that while those underlying commitments uh, kind of unify all these projects the uh, vocation of the chapel is very particular, and um, and quite different from the, the the mission of an art museum, and and I think it's uh, it's really a uh, genius of uh, Mrs. Domineau to have insisted that uh, that the Rothko Chapel had its own board of directors and was able to articulate and pursue its own mission, um, though with a lot of collaboration with, uh, with other elements of the of the memorial project.
1: Thank you all for sharing that. Um, Stephen, you've played a key role in the chapel history over the years. You've led numerous architectural tours, you've participated in programs, you've written about the chapel. So really you've been both Um, on the back end, working with the administrative staff and how we think through and present this space, but then also as one of the kind of speakers and and storytellers and faces of the chapel. Um, From your opinion, why is this publication that we're talking about today that everyone is excited to go by? um, Why why is it significant um, in the life of the chapel?
2: Well, um... Speaking as a scholar and academic, uh, I very much rely on um, what people write about themselves or how they describe uh, what they do. So for me, it's it's very valuable to have uh, not just one record, but really a whole series of records on how an institution uh, assesses itself, how it understands where it came from, why it came from, but then also how it handles change over time. And one of the things that makes Pamela's book, Sacred Modern, to me so revelatory, it is a fantastic book, is she really deals with these issues and the kind of contradictions and tensions that arise within an institution as it both seeks to be true to its founders, ideals, but at the same time as it also addresses... uh, Contemporary issues and the fact that the people who are running it now are not the people who started it. Uh, so how uh, I, I think this book, following on Susan Barnes's uh, initial history of the Chapel Project, of course Sheldon Nobleman's uh, extraordinary book on the Rockwell Chapel paintings, um, and then books by Frank Welch and Mark Lamster and Philip Johnson, and the kind of help you up. Uh, put this whole project in an architectural context. Um, once again, uh, I think the chapel is, is um, testing itself, sort of seeing where it has been, uh, where it's going, and I think this, this um, kind of institutional uh, inquiry uh, is, is really quite fascinating, and, and one of the things that, that makes uh, the Watford Chapel uh, so remarkable as an institution.
1: Thank you, thank you for sharing that. So now I wanna lean into the the future. Well, I wanna talk a little bit about uh, kind of now and into the future. Um, Pam and Stephen, you both have spoken a lot about um, the tension that the chapel holds between honoring and remembering its history and historical relevance, um, but at the same time, not wanting to get stuck there and wanting to remain relevant and grow and evolve and respond to the contemporary needs of the day. Um, can, can you maybe share a little bit
3: about that? Let's start with you, Pam. Well, thank you. And you know, in many ways, that is being true to the Menil, uh project. They would hate to be uh, regarded always in retrospect for their projects to seem untimely. So, uh, so in fact, they would welcome um, this uh, process of co- of continual reevaluation and uh, and revision of uh, of the project of the, of the chapel. Um, so I actually I see that it feels like attention because with some with a place that's so dearly loved as the chapel, people worry about change. Um and they certainly worry about something that is really so idiosyncratic being kind of normalized, I I regularized. But but it but to preserve it um in some fixed state would be absolutely um to go against the um, the impulses of them of the Manials. So um so I think that um people should be should embrace uh new initiatives. And I know that uh, you all have been working really hard to think about programming for the future. Um, so there's been all this attention into kind of crafting this space to make it uh, work as, as as richly as possible. But um, but beyond the space, there's this programming. And uh, we're, you know, to, for the chapel to, uh, to To look around itself in Houston and see um, so many uh, other institutions uh, who, um, who who make you know terrific partners for uh, for the chapel and um, and to think about um, the kinds of uh, issues of, uh, of uh, concerning social justice that the chapel um, can and perhaps should be uh, Engaging with today that may not have been, you know, on the horizon when when the when the chapel was uh, was first conceived. So I think you know one of the things I try to show in in my essay is that the moniles themselves were making this up as they went along. Um, they were they were figuring it out, and and it wasn't just that they were doing this themselves they made a point of being in conversation with others all the time and they really sought out, and this is one of the things that the travel travelogue show, is that uh, they, um, they sought out people who would press on their way of thinking about things. They wanted to to really hone their thinking, um, be challenged. And so um, the, the idea of the chapel being continually redefined, is um, just seems to me to be actually integral to uh, to what the chapel is and, and to us and, and you know very much true to its history.
1: Well, it sounds like we're on track because um, I can say, as someone on the inside, we do enroll the support of a lot of people, and uh, we are not alone on this journey. But really, do rely on so many experts and advisors and community members um, as as we as we move forward. Stephen, I'm curious if there's anything you'd like to add on, on this topic around this tension of honoring the past, but also remaining responsive to to the now and, and the needs of the future.
2: Well, uh, considering that, that question, uh, what popped up is my own uh, experience. Um, uh, and it is, um, so sometimes things get a little out of control with the Rockwood Chapel. Um, the programs that it um, produces uh, don't always draw people who are of the same mind. And I've, uh, when my friend Jacqueline Schmiel uh, headed the uh, program committee, she put me on it. So I served for a number of years on the chapel's program committee and came to a lot of programs. And uh, there were times when I was afraid there would be fist fights. I mean, this is not always a peaceful, tranquil place. Um, and, of course, in an institution, you don't really want uh, that, that sort of controversy. I mean, uh, institutions are very sort of controversy-averse, but it occurred to me that, that a very special quality of the Rothbard Chapel is that it is a place where people can come to disagree and to have those conversations that um, would be hard to have um, elsewhere or at least um, it kind of provides uh, a sacred space. And and one of the most controversial um, programs, uh, the the speaker, uh, Mark Ellis, talked about being there uh, surrounded by Rockwell's paintings. Um, And it was a kind of rare occasion of which uh, someone who was there to not talk about the art started talking about the art and linking that then to the kind of questions of social justice and political justice that this particular speaker is raising. And and it it makes me really understand what a unique place, you know, to to use the word that that, that you have, the Waco Chapel can be because it's, um, it it can be about disagreement uh, as well as uh, art and
3: peace. And also say, you know, that's really precisely the kind of character of the kind of radical hospitality that uh that the that the chapel embraces that idea of really being open to difference and uh rather than kind of demanding that people assimilate into the view of the institution that there that this is really about um listening to others
1: Thank you. So as as we start to bring our conversation to a close, um, I want to go to you, Paul. And, you know, as we're leaning more into our future, um, share with us what do you do you have a hope for the chapel? What's your hope for the chapel?
4: (laughs) Well, Ashley, as a photographer, my concentration is always on the present. Uh, that's the really the only time you can take a photograph. But I do try to be very aware that the present is fleeting, and I keep an eye toward this change as the present quickly, so quickly becomes the past, documenting what is now with an, an awareness that it will eventually change, inevitably change. Um, over the 50 years that I've been around the chapel and documenting the change, uh, my hopes for the chapel have have been realized again and again and again. It's, it's ongoing. Uh, my younger son, uh, Noah, living in the neighborhood, would find uh, going to the chapel was an important part of his week uh, to seek that uh, stillness. And so, I think the current moment of the chapel realizes that for me, and I hope in the future that despite all the background uh, radical hospitality that ends in uh, disagreement uh, or sustains that disagreement, I hope that the chapel will still be this quiet neighborhood place of stillness and light.
1: That's beautifully said. Thank you. Um, Pam and or Stephen, or all three of you, uh, final question of our time together. Um, you have a, a dream for how again, this amazing book that we're talking about tonight. Um, you have a dream for how this book will be actualized or will be put to use uh, in furthering the chapel's mission?
3: Well, I hope that for those who have not yet had the opportunity to visit the chapel, that the book will uh, really uh, inspire them to to actually um, visit. It's uh, There is really no, as beautiful as the images are in the book, there's no substitute for actually being in the space. But I will say that the images, um, really uh, show in the in the book really show how alive the paintings are, I think because of uh, because of the way they work as an ensemble and because uh, of the contrast from the uh, brightness outdoors to the uh, much lower light levels within the within the chapel, it takes a while for you have to quietly adjust. To being in the in, in the chapel, and uh, the paintings take a while to reveal themselves, and I think the book really um, uh, should encourage people to be really patient in the in the chapel to allow themselves time to really pay attention and to and to uh, to really see the paintings that are really kind of a, vibrant, um, as as uh, quiet as their palette is, they kind of thrum with activity, and there's a lot going on. And I really hope that uh, the book really does draw people to experience that for themselves. how about you, Stephen?
2: Well, to build to, uh, on, on Pam's observations, I think, um, for me, one of the things that makes the paintings come alive um, is the quality of light in the chapel. And uh, thanks to, again, George Sexton and ARO architects, uh, that, that is sort of a whole new phase in the chapel's history with this new uh, skylight installation. Uh, but the if you're there, particularly as Pam said, if you're willing to give it time um, on the right day uh, with the right light conditions, those paintings, it, it, it Becomes dramatic, uh, in, in which they they almost seem to sing to each other. There have been other times, like late in the afternoon, when the the chapel just feels like it's enveloped in this wonderful silvery cloud of light, um, and the again these kind of qualities of, of uh, experience uh, make really all the difference in your perception of the space. I should add that there's really a whole new element that had not existed before, which, which Paul alluded to, and that is the, the landscape. Uh, that is something that's really radically different than it has been in the past, if you compare Paul's before and after photographs. But uh, Nelson and Herb the landscape architects, had really created a new setting uh, with, with plants for uh, the Rockwood the, the Chapel and for the broken obelisk uh, Barnett Newman sculpture uh, dedicated to uh, Dr. Martin Luther King in of the chapel uh, that, uh, as as Paul observed, uh, makes a kind of setting for um, gatherings uh, that uh, people have not experienced before on the grounds of the chapel. Thank
1: you, Stephen. And Paul, how about you? What is your hope for the the future of this book and how it lives out into the
4: Listening to Stephen and Pam talking about the importance of archives and my own interest in history. I hope this book adds as it does to the archives of documenting the, the depth of the changes, the depths of the Menil's commitment and uh, encourages people to go to the chapel and of course to buy the book. Well, on that note, um, Pam,
1: Paul and Stephen. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and your experiences with us all tonight, and thank you for your thoughtful contributions toward this truly impressive publication. Thanks,
4: thank Ashley. You so much
1: pleasure. So Rothko Chapel, an oasis for reflection, will be available for purchase from the Chapel Shop, which is located at the Rothko Chapel Suzanne Deal Booth Welcome House, located at 1410 Sol Ross Street. They will be open tomorrow, Sunday, February 28th at 10 a.m. We are going to be finishing this weekend's 50th anniversary celebration with our interfaith service and community celebration tomorrow, Sunday, February 28th at 2 p.m. Central Time. This will include surf Sufi whirling, prayers, reflections, and music. For more information and to register to this program, please visit our website at Rothcochapel.org And note that we have many other 50th anniversary programs that will continue March through June as well. And last, a very special thanks to our individual and institutional donors who generously have supported the chapel's 50th anniversary programming. And my deepest appreciation to our programming and technical team, while you cannot see them also making this experience available uh, right now has been Kelly Johnson and Cesar Cabrera. They've been working um, behind the scenes uh, to make sure that this is coming to you very smoothly. So we are so grateful to them for that. So thank you again for joining us. We look forward to seeing you at the Rothko Chapel soon. Be well.